Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Ed Needham who is the editor and publisher of Strong Words, a great new magazine about great new books and uh, you've probably heard me evangelising about it in previous podcasts and no doubt in the course of this podcast we'll continue to evangelise about a magazine. If you love books, if you love reading, you have to subscribe to Strong Words. Uh, Ed was previously the editor of the million-selling FHM magazine back in the 1990s, then moved to New York to launch and edit that title before becoming managing editor of Rolling Stone magazine and editor-in-chief of US Maxim, then the biggest-selling men's magazine in the world. He's also developed a number of magazine brands such as Coach and The Week Junior. He's a former winner of the PPA Magazine of the Year, PPA Editor of the Year, and the BSME's Men's Magazine of the Year Awards. Ed also thinks that books will tell you more about other people and the planet you live on than the internet ever will, and it will never steal your data. Ed, thanks for joining us on the Read All About It podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I did mention there just in the introduction that you know, I have, have mentioned your magazine before. On the podcast, it's obviously people who love books, and it's talking about their favourite books, and having discovered strong words... It's the perfect magazine for anybody who does love reading. Uh, I, I say the downside jokingly that just every every issue you end up with like a barrel of more books that you want to read. But I suppose that's what you're wanting to do with it as well. Yes, I, I mean thanks for your kind words about the magazine, about strong words. It's uh, and that is the point. I think books should be just as interesting to read about as they are to read. And access to sort of information about new books is diminishing all the time. You know, papers have less space magazines barely scratch the surface and yet books are coming out as such a torrent that people can't keep up with them so the idea of strong words is to be almost like the sort of you know if you think of the the sort of more academic journals like the tls and the lrb as the sort of michelin starred publications strong words is very much the bistro variety this is this is great food for the people and i want uh, i want people to you know instead of it to be sort of sort of rather solemn homework approach to books for people to read strong words and think yeah, that's the book for me. That's the one, you know, I've got to get that one. So it's, it's not trying to be sort of ivory tower critical. It's trying to be witty and useful and entertaining in itself and guide people towards the next great read. Because in many ways, the book industry, with its over-dependence on blurbs, is a bit, you know, it's very easy to, to fall for a blurb and then uh, take your book home and realise this, you know, they got me again. You know, they've, they've sold me another, you know, they've oversold, a, they sold me another pup kind of thing. So that's what, that's what Strong Words is trying to do. Because it kind of came, came to me at a, a really good time, because I think, like you kind of touched on already, it's sad to see like, some of the newspapers that are cutting back on the amount of book reviews and book coverage they have. Because it's one of the things, certainly as a reader, that you, you always enjoyed reading. So came at the right time. But also I think it's worth saying to people, whether you like your interests in fiction or non-fiction, graphic novels, biographies, 
Strong Words is basically has something for everyone. And sometimes you, I find myself, first of all, turning to the say fiction, which I read a lot of. But then, then over the course of the next couple of weeks, reading about non-fiction books, and so it gives you that real flavour of things that you're interested in, but things that you maybe didn't realise you were interested in. Quite. I mean, that's again, that's, that's absolutely right. You put your finger on it. I mean, one of the things that people I think would like to do is try books a little bit beyond their normal comfort zone. People tend to stick within their comfort zone because. You know, for obvious reasons, you read what you know and you read what you like. But sometimes there's that kind of desire to step outside it. And people are often kind of never quite sure where to go. You know, so Strong Words is very much trying to, you know, encourage people to try things that, that wouldn't be there, you know, within their sort of first choice of, of genre. And I've, and I've found, you know, reader feedback has been entirely positive on that subject. And the things people have picked up have, have really uh, blown their minds. And I should mention as well, in each issue, and I just looked at the, the most recent issue that, that dropped through my door, and I think it's something like 108 different books that I've mentioned. And I should mention it's you that, that reads all the books and basically writes all, all the copy. So I'm, I'm delighted that you've been able to tear yourself away from that, which I imagine is just an all-consuming task to talk to you today. Well, it's, I mean, been asked for there to be more hours in the day and more days in the week. I do produce it all myself. I've been in, like, as you mentioned in your very kind introduction, I've been, I've worked in magazines for years. And the technology of magazines is now such that it is possible for one person to make a magazine of high quality, uh, the kind of things that uh, used to take companies of, you know, staff of dozens of people to produce in the past. Technology has now enabled that to be done with just a, a single person. So that's the good side. The bad side is that same technology has kind of destroyed the market for magazines. I can do it myself. I do do it myself. And like you say, it, it just takes up all my time. There's no easy way of uh, reading a book quickly. And I'm guessing, I mean, it's an obvious thing. It's obviously a labour of love because for it to be all-consuming like that, it has to be. Absolutely. You know, there's no way of doing this or, or for anybody to do anything at great length, you know, with total commitment, if it doesn't somehow spark your imagination. And I think, you know, this is one of the great things about books is that people can absolutely lose themselves in books. They are enriching and inspiring. And there are so many books that just, they, they're life-affirming or they make you think, well, look, if this person can go through that and come out of it so sort of transformed, then it, you know, makes, makes you just give you that, more comp that little bit more confidence that your own projects or that your own problems can be dealt with and you know, overcome. And this is, uh, you know, they're related in that if, you, if they don't sort of trigger your ima imagination, you'll never find the time to really get stuck into things. So that's the, that's the key to strong words. I, I love doing it. I love every second of it. Well, if anyone, uh, see, I've mentioned it before, if anybody wants to subscribe, and I'll mention this, the website again at the end of the podcast and also in the wee notes, it's www.strong-words.co.uk. It's nine issues a year. The first issue for UK, UK subscribers is free. And as I say, I've, I've been a subscriber now for just over a year and I can't recommend it highly enough. So once you've finished listening to this podcast, go and, go and subscribe <laughs> exactly. to Strong Words. <laughs> Don't hesitate. Do not delay. <laughs> so I was intrigued, obviously delighted to, to have you on the podcast, but obviously intrigued just to see uh, your book choices or the questions that I've, I've set you. So if I take you right back to the first question, which is your favourite book from childhood and the one that you've mm. gone for, is Psycho by Robert Bloch. Obviously, a lot of people may be more familiar with the, the Hitchcock adaptation. I found this, of the, of the five questions you asked me, this was the hardest one to answer because 
when I kind of look back on my, thought back on my childhood, I realised that perhaps maybe I didn't read as many books as I thought I had. Obviously, uh, you know, I'm, I, I liked reading when I was small and I've worn glasses ever since my nose was strong enough to support them. So I was, I was always, you know, slightly bookish kid, but with the exception that I didn't read all that many books, I don't think. And once I'd kind of pushed past Enid Blyton, I found it hard to kind of think of the th- of all that many books that I'd, that I'd actually read. So I think I really liked quite lurid things like Frank Herbert, you know, like, like The Rats and The Fog, things like Night of the Living Dead, you know, zombie novels. I remember I bought Psycho by Robert Block. Uh, I must have been maybe 11 or 12 because somebody had given me some book tokens and I'd stand a Christmas or birthday present. And I bought this because I really liked the cover. It's obviously been published many times at different covers, but this one had a kind of a white tiled wall with somebody, I think there's a knife, somebody holding a sort of knife, and then there's a reflection in the knife of this sort of mad woman, uh, old mad elderly woman on the, in the sort of reflection in the knife. So I thought, oh, this looks good. You know, this, this looks like the kind of lurid sensationalism that really appeals to my 11 or 12 year old mind. And I, I was, you know, like I say, I was no sort of Hilary, Hilary Mantel, you know, who's reading Shakespeare at eight or, or uh, Donna Tartt, you know, who could recite these great long poems like Gunga Din at the age of five and things like this. So I was just looking for a bit of a, sort of luridity, if there, is, if there is such a word. And I think the reason that Psycho really grasped my imagination was because it made me realise there, there is a big gap in my knowledge here between me and the adult world. Obviously, things like, you know, the famous five sleeping in the heather, you can, you know, you can get your, even if you don't know what high tea is, you can still kind of, you can fill in those gaps with your imagination. But here there was something going on that I just couldn't understand. And part of it is the sort of plot thing, because it was when this woman goes to, the, I think it was her name, I wrote it down, oh, Mary Crane. Mary Crane is the woman who steals the money and ends up at the Bates Motel, which no longer has any customers because the uh, highway has been moved. And uh, she goes for dinner with Norman Bates, the very creepy Norman Bates, invites her for dinner at the house behind the motel. And she hears this woman say, uh, I'll kill the bitch, who she believes is Norman's mother. He says she tells her she's uh, his mother. And she, she gets killed by this sort of old crone apparition in her motel room. And then when the colleagues and cops come looking for her, they discover that Mrs. Bates has actually been dead for years. So there's this great... Um, uh, it's just this sort of plot gap here. So how can this be? You know, who is this woman then? If she's been dead for years, what's going on? And I just remember not trying to come up with scenarios and none of them fitting. So there was that level of sort of intrigue. And then obviously when they, you get this explosive ending where you really are, you know, it's revealed that it, it's uh, Norman Bates all along and that his mother's dead in the basement and he's been wearing her clothes and somehow their minds have, you know, he's become her and she's become him and is that this is just brand new information of an absolutely mind-blowing potency. So I think that's why I've chosen that book, because it just, it was uh, just the acceleration from Blyton to the world of uh, psychology. You know, this was written in the late 50s when, you know, the time of the Cold War, mind control, the fascination with brainwashing, all these things were very modern. Also, it's the time when uh, I think Ed Gain, the serial killer, had just been arrested and he was very, he turned out to have very you know similar characteristics to Norman Bates and so it's just a you know one of those moments in your life I think where you just kind of go through a door and age very quickly in, in the space of a few pages. I mean that is that is some leap 
in a literary sense from the famous five to psycho um, <laughs> because as you, as you touch on apart from the, maybe the kind of the horror aspects of it it's quite sophisticated themes because you're talking about somebody you know with real mental health that kind of schizophrenia of him is it, mm. is it him is it his mom is his mom is it him were you allowed as a, a youngster then just to explore in terms of your own reading to make that own leap from famous five to psycho without ending saying what earth are you reading no I d- yeah i don't think there's any uh any kind of uh, intervention or, um, you know, uh, censorship. You know, I remember I used to read on holidays, but the kind of books I would buy would be, again, whatever the most lurid thing was I could find on those rotating racks that would be outside, you know, where they sold the little flags and the uh, plastic spades and everything. So it was always very, you know, yeah, just looking for the, for the most lurid material I could find. So it was very much of a of a type with the kind of thing I used to read when I occasionally read, but uh, there was certainly no um, parent grabbing it and locking it away in a cupboard, you know, until I was old enough. Because I hadn't realised until you know when I was just doing some research before this that he had actually Robert Block had actually wrote there was sequels two he wrote two sequels to mm. the original Psycho Psycho Two and then Psycho House. Because I think as again I mentioned, I think a lot of people are very familiar with the. Uh, the Hitchcock film, which became such an iconic yes. film. And probably fewer people have, have read the book. Yeah, I mean, like I said, uh, I mean, I only bought it because of the cover. I wasn't looking for uh, interesting um, psychological dramas. I think uh, Robert Block himself was a, you know, obviously the film kind of made the book. The book was only constantly republished because of the film. But he was also a sort of horror hack for hire. I think he, he was sort of penny a word contributor of horror stories to you know, horror magazines. This was just one of his many scribblings that, uh, and it obviously happened to catch the eye of an agent and ended up as a film. But he was, he was also apparently an extremely nice chap, Robert Block. I was also reading about him a little bit. All the, the other men and women who wrote in that kind of world of just cranking it out for magazines. They were always mentioned what an extremely nice man he was. Because <laughs> it's also interesting, it's that, you know, I, I've discussed this in previous podcasts, do you judge a book by its cover? I'm a big believer that, that you do. That the, the book, <laughs> the cover is the first thing you see, and that's what catches your eye. And then obviously, yeah. in the title, the author, as you say, return in the back and, and the blurb, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. But even at that young age, as you say, that's what's catching your eye, and you're thinking, right, that that cover looks interesting enough for me to pick that up and go and read it. Quite. Uh, I and mean, cover design is absolutely vital, isn't it? And I feel. I have great admiration for cover designers because it's not as if they can sit around and meditate on them like, you know, like Leonardo da Vinci. It took him, you know, sort of 25 years to do the Mona Lisa and he still hadn't finished it by the time he died. You know, these poor designers of of, uh, book covers probably got 40, 50 on the go at any one time. And they've all they've got to have a sense of what the book is about. They've got to have a sense of what the market demands. They've got to have a sense of the it's got to be identifiable as a genre, but try and avoid all the cliches. You know, and obviously there are just more and more books coming all the time. There's only so many fonts. There's only so many, so many pictures. It's a really impressive art, the art of the cover designer. And I suppose that's the same. I know somebody who's, who's lots of experience in magazine publishing. That, that same philosophy must apply to magazines as well, because it's you know, on the shelves. That's what, yeah. that's what catches the readers, first of all. A little bit, yes. I mean, a Strong Words now is a, it's a purely subscription magazine, especially since the lockdown. I used to, I used to be on the, on the newsstand, but I've taken it off since uh, rail and air travel became a, a thing that our ancestors did and was no longer sort of uh, fashionable. But certainly when I, you know, most of the magazines I've done, the cover was everything. We used to say it's the most important page of the whole magazine. 
there are always these statistics kind of bandied around about how um, you know people spend at most two seconds looking at a, a cover of a magazine, and that's what that's the most impactful piece of information that factors into their decisions to whether to buy or not. I've no idea if that's true or not, but it was. Uh, you've got to, you know, your cover has got to make an impact in, you know, almost literally the blink of an eye. In terms of uh, this literary journey, I'm taking you on, and obviously you've already told us you, you leapt from the famous five to cycle. But if I take you on to the kind of favourite book from your more kind of formative teenage years, and the book that you've chosen is Charles Dickens's Great Expectations. This would have been when I was kind of doing my doing my O levels in the late sort of late seventies, and I remember to you know Great Expectations is a is not. You know, it's far from Dickens' longest novel, but to me, it felt really daunting. It wasn't the kind of book that I would have that I was reading at all. And I remember in the English class, I think there was we were on a table of four, so that two boys and two girls. And one of the girls, she had a much she had an older boyfriend, and they were always going out to clubs and going to see bands. And she was very much into sort of you know disco and funk music, and so she she would come and talk about the latest records that they'd been listening to and going to see Funkadelic and people like this. And so anyway, basically there's constant distraction. And there's this other girl who used to sit at the table as well sometimes, remember, another massive distraction. And she had this, she could do this trick where when she yawned, uh, a sort of fountain of water would come out of her mouth. <laughs> She's had some weird physiological good fortune that enabled us to do this party trick. So we're constantly urging her to yawn. But the point being that when it came to sort of studying great expectations, often we would have to read in the class, you know, the teacher would say, right, read a couple of chapters. And instead of reading a couple of chapters, we'd be, you know, go and you know, do that yawning thing or tell us about, tell us about the disco and all this kind of stuff. And it meant that, you know, with any book, but especially for Dickens, with its great world of characters, I just had no chance of understanding it. You know, you can't afford to let your attention wander. And I just couldn't, I had no idea what was going on. And I thought, God, that's a dreary old book. Then revision came around. And so I had to sit down and actually read it effectively for the first time. And reading it like that, focusing on it and paying attention to every page, it absolutely blew my mind. You know, there were entire characters in there that I completely missed. Just the, the sophistication of the plot, the atmosphere of those opening pages, you know, the terror on the marshes, the orphan and the convicts, and then all the subtleties of the kind of snobbery and the snootiness of some of the characters, you know, that it was just mind-blowing. I thought, I, you know, how did I miss this first time around? I just can't get enough of it. So from there, I, just, I read all of Charles Dickens chronologically. They were the next, for the next 18 months, that was all I read. So from the Pickwick Papers to Edwin Drood. There's a couple of books in there I didn't particularly like, but I just stuck with it and it had that powerful an effect on me that that, that was all I read for, for the next 18 months. Because that, that is an impressive uh, reading project. I always used to have a holiday habit that I would always, you know, I was taking books on holiday. One of them would always be Charles Dickens. But I haven't actually read the Pickwick Papers. And interestingly, I was talking to Kathy Rensenbrink was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and that was uh-huh. a book that she had kind of struggled with. But it's on my list. It's in a pile of books that I, I want to read because a couple of other people have raved about it. Well, it's slightly unconventional, isn't it? I mean, it, it, because it's not, it's not really a novel in the same sense of, of everything else he's, he's written. You know, it's almost a set of scenes, a set of scenarios, and it sort of lacks the structure of, of novels that, that he subsequently wrote. But, it, you know, for a sort of great theatre of characters and Dickens' language and all these sort of absurd individuals who wander in and out, it's, uh, it's got all that but it hasn't quite got the, uh, the sort of melodrama that some of the novels have. So having, you know, back at that point, obviously Great Expectations 
once you actually you've read it in revision, then go back and read all these books. Have you subsequently is it a book that you returned to at various times? Great expectations in terms of rereading it at all? Or? I think I've read it again. I think the one that I really liked when I was in my uh, in my Dickens period was Barnaby Rudge. For some reason, that really that really captured my attention. And when I went back to it, I found myself a bit disappointed. And I think that's often the way with books, isn't it? There, it's not just the book, but it's like kind of who you were when you read the book is really important. And the effect, the, the impact of the book is very much tied to who you were at the time and, you know, what you knew at the time and where you were as an individual. And I'd enjoyed it so much that I was disappointed to find I didn't, it didn't really didn't have the same impact. But I think one of the, I read, uh, what else have I read? Uh, Our Mutual Friend I went back to, which I think was perhaps... My favourite, uh, sorry, which was also another, you know, big favourite of when I was reading them. And I think that still, that still holds up. I'm guessing that nowadays, the, the time for you to reread uh, must be diminished because you're obviously having to read so many new books in the course of, of your, your working reach, which I'm guessing is also a seven-day read. It is, yes. And it's a little bit like that. You know, if I've got any spare time, the last thing I want to do is read another book. But I do listen to a lot of audio books and I, I think the audio books are of an exceptional quality. The people they get to read them are just outstanding. So I do from time to time, you know, if, there's, if I can't find an audio book that I have to read, I have to listen to for strong words, then I will from time to time add in a, an old one. So uh, there, there's all, there, that's the only possibility. But if I've, honestly, if I've got a day off, the last thing I'm going to do is uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I'll read another book. <laughs> that's, that's fair enough. It's interesting you're talking about audiobooks here because what I've noticed with uh, quite a lot of the younger guys in, in my work is that's what they, they listen to the books rather than occasionally they'll be reading a physical book, but mm. they seem to enjoy listening to audiobooks, whether that's driving to work or whatever they're going. But that's how they consume the literature much more than, than I am very much. I love the, the book, the physical book in my hand rather than audiobooks. Yeah, well, I walk a lot, so I always listen to have a book on the go when I'm walking. But I do think that their ability to kind of match the right reader to the right book and the quality of those readings, just those, you know, actors with absolutely fabulous voices is uh, really enhances the experience. It's one of those things, as long as people are reading books, then whether it's as audio books or on, on a tablet or physical books, then that's the most important thing, really, isn't it? Well, it's the kind of thing people like to squabble about, isn't it? If does an audio book count as having read the book? I'm saying absolutely it does. But uh, there'll be, there's plenty of people who would fight you in the street for that. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm sure there'll be people shouting at this. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I take you on to the next question in the podcast, and that is a book that you'd recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which is a, yes. a classic graphic novel. Yes, well, I, I covered graphic novels a lot in uh, Strong Words, but I think this, is a, this has got to be contender for the, the greatest graphic novel of all time. I've given it to a lot of people as a gift, to people of all ages. I've given it to my daughter, who is uh, currently uh, 16 and not given to reading books at all, and she, uh, she swears she read it. But uh, I think it's, it has so much going for it. You know, people don't know it. It's a graphic novel about a man in New York in the 80s, I think, who decides he's going to interview his father for a graphic novel project. And his father was in Auschwitz and in Poland, I think, before he was arrested in a ghetto, before he was arrested and taken into the camps, as, as, and as was his mother. 
and it's his, his attempt to interview his father, with whom he has a very difficult relationship, about those years of before the war and then trying to evade the Gestapo during the war, being in a, a ghetto and then being in Auschwitz. There's, I mean, there's so much in it. It's this history, biography. It's very modern because of the, the graphic novel aspect of it. It's very visual. It's great storytelling and really moving, but also this him trying to come to terms with his father, who's such a difficult individual to get on with, um, because he's so, he's really mean, he's um, not particularly um, sort of open, understandably, about what he's done, you know, he's a very jaundiced view of human nature and relationships, so it's quite a sort of friction between the, the interviewer and the, the interviewee, the father. And obviously the great sort of thing about Mouse as well is that it re represents the characters as animals. So I think the Jews are mice and the Gestapo are... I think they're cats and the bulls are pigs. It's a fantastic sort of way of personalising it and telling individual stories, but also putting it in, a, in this context that is completely unique by doing them as, uh, as animals. It's extraordinary. Children should be made to read it at school. Because I often find, uh, whenever I'm doing the podcast, there's always one book in, in any guest's choice, which is the one which I haven't read that I want to read. And this is a, a book which I'm aware of, but I've never read it. Because I watched, remember watching a documentary about Art Spiegelman, and it's, it's just, it was a fascinating, it's a fascinating documentary. And I think, as you say, I think it's, it's an important book that people should, should read in terms of obviously the history, but in a way... And I, I'm not sure for me it was whether it was just, you know, I'm not really, probably from when I stopped reading comics as a child, I haven't really gone back to graphic novels. But again, I know people who are very much into graphic novels and are very much, they are a literary genre. And I think people who don't read them are maybe too easy to, or too quick to dismiss them as yes. comics, which they are most definitely not. Yes, I completely agree. You know, I mean, I think if people, if they're not exposed to a graphic novel, they're, they're very difficult to get them to pick one up, you know, because like you say, they assume they're either for children or they assume that they are something to do with superheroes and, you know, sort of Marvel comics and that kind of thing. Uh, but they're not, you know, they're, you know, a lot of them are absolutely extraordinary. You know, the quality of characterization, the quality of artwork, the quality of, you know, structure and plot and the emotion that they pack in, into them is, uh, is incredible. And this... You know, so mouse is just math. I mean, there's, there's absolutely nothing like it. And so I think it's just as a method of, you know, just really simple education to those people who aren't familiar with that period of history. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily original and accessible uh, way of uh, telling that particular historical period. You mentioned you'd given it as a present for your daughter to read, and you said she said she read it. What was her What was her reaction to it then? Well, she said she said uh, you know she said she really enjoyed reading it. It was positive, but uh, you know she's uh, I didn't I didn't sit her down and ask her questions about it. You know I didn't I didn't make her do a, a mock uh, GCSE <laughs> on it. So it's entirely possible she might have looked at it for five minutes and say, yeah, that's enough. I think I can uh, I think I can wing it, and uh, if it makes the old man happy, then I'll say, yeah, yeah, I loved it, great. Because the other thing, I, and again, I mentioned this right at the start in terms of how Strong Words is put together and how, you know, there's fiction, non-fiction, graphic novels. They take their place, and again, it's maybe for, you know, I touched on the fact that maybe a lot of people are either unfamiliar or dismissive of graphic novels, but I think the good thing of Strong Words is when you're reading the magazine, it takes its place alongside books for, you know, fiction books, non-fiction books, books about war, cookbooks, books for children. So it's just, you've made it clear without having to trumpet it, that this is just a, this is another genre that needs to be taken as seriously as everyone else. 
quiet. I mean, I would urge people to check them out. You know, they're, they're, another great thing about graphic novels is they're often a lot quicker to read. You know, you don't, you're, not, you're not having to commit to uh, great chunks of, of time to, uh, to get through a graphic novel quite often. Yet they can have exactly the same impact or alter your view of things or view of yourself or, you know, all the things that great novels can do, great graphic novels can do as well. You're listening to the Dollar About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddyhay, and my guest this week, Ed Needham. And Ed, we're, we've gone from a book that you'd recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And you had uh, said anything by D.H. Lawrence, but you chose, you know, mentioned in particular Sons and Lovers by D.H. Lawrence. Well, I, f- I found this one quite difficult to answer as well. And there's not, there, well, there wasn't one that absolutely leapt out. And there are lots of books that I haven't liked, that you could pay me to have another go at, because there's lots of books which I feel I ought to have liked, you know, because so many other people did like them. For example, uh, I've never got on with, with Hilary Mantel. I've never got on with Henry, Henry James. I've never got on with Eleanor Ferranti. Yet with these writers, the problem I feel lies with me. There's something I've missed. And if I had the sort of time, I would quite happily go back and, and give them another go. But T.H. Lawrence, I feel pretty certain about. I am never going to find anything in there which I can sort of identify with. And so, and it and it's just feels like such an uphill struggle that it's not even feeling, you know, how am I, get, how am I ever going to get to the end of this book? But it's even like, how am I ever going to get to the end of this sentence? It's so dense and so unrewarding and, you know, just not even being able to grasp what he's on about. You know, every step of the way felt like being told to turn back. You know, don't bother. Find something else, you know. And they, and this was, you know, I would read sort of D.H. Lawrence Pass as a, you know, when I was as a student, that kind of age. And, you know, when, which is perhaps the only time in, in your life you've got the right sort of combination of energy and curiosity and dutifulness and bloody mindedness that makes you take on really difficult books. Sons and Lovers is a really difficult book, but it is you know, obviously quite challenging. But I just found it, found, found it impossible. And I would actually give you money to not have to read it. Well, do you know the closest, I've, I've never read it, the closest I ever came was in fifth year at, at secondary school, so about 15, 16, and in our English class, again, I've, I've no idea why the teacher did this, but for the boys, he gave us all Catch-22, Joseph Heller, and he gave all the girls sons and mothers. For all of us, it was one of those revelatory books where it was funny, it was serious, it had, you know, a lot of subject matter that, that probably for, for like teenage boys at a Catholic school, you're thinking, well, should we really be getting this? But it, it kind of opened that your mind to the wonders of literature. I think the girls toiled more with sons and lovers. And, but I never ever, I'd love to meet somebody I was at school with to ask them, did that leave an indelible mark positively the way that Catch-22 has with me? Well, there's, you know, there's plenty of people who are fanatical about Lawrence, aren't there? And I just read the Martin Amis autobiography, um, it's called Inside Story, where he sort of talks about how, just how important Lawrence was in the, as a novelist in changing people's attitudes to the novel and introducing more, more sort of modernistic approaches and so just how revolutionary he was and radical. That's not nothing. And I also, when I was in, um, uh, I was in New Mexico once, I went to his house in Taos, which is where he died. I think, and there's a monument there to him. He, he lived, I think, with his, both his mistress and his wife. There was some kind of very uh, modern arrangement. And when he died, I think these two women couldn't agree on who was going to get the ashes or what they were going to do with the ashes. They went on, apparently, according to the person in, this, in, his, in the house, you know, that we did this sort of tour. 
it went on for a couple of years until one day I think the wife came back and said, oh, you know, I've decided what to do with the ashes. And the mistress said something like, well, it's, it's, it's a bit late because I've mixed them up with a load of concrete and made them into this monument. So uh, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> I've made an executive decision, hard luck. If only his books could have been that interesting. <laughs> and in terms of, like, say, we've been talking about your work with, with Strong Words, and I touched on at the start in the introduction, you know, the experience you've had in, in magazines, you know, top selling magazines, both here in, in the States. And how did you, how did you get into the world of, of magazines originally? Well, it's kind of by luck, really, entirely by luck, because I'd been, I'd been living abroad for a number of years. When I left college, I didn't know what to do. And I went to Spain and lived in Spain for several years. And I worked as a, as a translator uh, and just loved the Spanish life, you know, sunshine and a few drinks every now and again, this kind of thing. But realised that I really, I wanted to be a journalist. I've always fancied it. But I've never done anything about it. I was kind of, and, and it's not as though, you know, I had a particular urge to report from Parliament or you know, uncover corruption or anything like this. I just thought that looks like great fun and, and they look like my kind of people. So when I moved back from Spain and just started freelancing for various publications and got involved at FHM because I had a friend who worked there. And so I just started doing some shifts. And then that it was at the time when those men's magazines were really starting to build up some velocity and popularity and they, were, they felt very new and exciting because everything that, that kind of came before in men's magazines was, you know, had this very bizarre view of what, how men, to, how men wanted to see themselves reflected in magazines. So it was all, you know, how to look like James Bond or which kind of fountain pen you needed to get a woman into bed or, you know, <laughs> the, you know, how to tell, you know, the difference between single malt scotches I don't know just this kind of stuff that is so sort of esoteric whereas you know men were more interested in football and music and the eternal mysteries of how to get on with women so these men's magazines at the time you know the new ones were considered so new that they just found a gigantic audience very quickly and I was very lucky enough to be involved with with FHM which became the, the biggest one at a time when it was when it could do nothing wrong so that was the, that was my launch pad. And obviously, you, you, you know, you went to the States as well and, and working for a, an iconic magazine like Rolling Stone as well. That, that, that must be a great experience as a, as a journalist because people are obviously so aware of that brand and that name and the quality of the, the writing in it. It was a completely mind-blowing experience because coming from, from FHM in the UK, I'd launched FHM in the US and did that for three years. Launching a magazine is tough. Nobody knows who you are and nobody wants to let you in. And it's a constant struggle to get, you know, people to be on the cover. And it's a, very, it's a celebrity magazine to so constantly fighting other magazines to get the best, you know, the biggest possible name on the cover. And then to go to a magazine like Rolling Stone, where you could call absolutely anybody, uh, it doesn't matter how A-list or A-plus list, you know, whichever list, uh, whichever VIP list you, you, you choose from, people would just drop whatever they were doing to come and do the cover and be interviewed by Rolling Stone. It was that considered that sort of iconic an experience and that much of an endorsement of your celebrity magnificence that suddenly there was never any issue at all with, with getting celebrities to be on the cover. In terms of, again, go back to what you're doing now, and we touched on it at the start about how newspapers are contracting the amount of space that they give over for books, book reviews, for example. How, how has the publishing industry responded to strong words, publishers, but also authors as well? Because you are giving them a platform to promote their, their goods, as it were. Quite. I mean, you know, people have responded very enthusiastically because Strong Words is a very 
positive and enthusiastic magazine you know i'm not in in the business of cutting people off at the knees although you know this is very it's much easier to be to write something cruel about people you know and slag their books off and it's very easy to be funny but I'm not really interested in doing that. You know, if there are books that I don't like, and there are quite a few, then I just don't review them. And I'd much rather give the space to something that I can be really enthusiastic about and still be, still try and be, you know, witty or entertaining or say something amusing or, which often is, you know, just depends on finding something amusing within the book, you know, because authors can be very entertaining or very, you know, or say something kind of shocking or really profound or something that really pulls you up and stops you in your tracks. So, that's very much my approach. It's still, you know, it's it's not the most gigantic of magazines. Hopefully it will be, you know, before too long. But uh, I think publicists, the publishing industry, having seen just how newspapers have had to contract their space as advertising, you know, book advertising and advertising gen- generally has migrated from newspapers to the, the grim social media. They've had to cut down the amount of space available for book reviews. So any new space for book reviews is greeted with fireworks, champagne and a marching band. Because I also feel as well, and it's one of the things that appeals to me, and always as a reader, I hate negative reviews. I mean, I think social media is such a negative platform and it encourages negativity, but I hate whenever I read, even in newspaper. I think you can have a constructive review, but sometimes, as you say, it's easy to be relentlessly negative. But I don't think that I don't think as a reader that's what you want because you want you want to feel that love of books, or you want to be your know, curiosity aroused to say, right, I want to go and investigate that, I want to go and read that. Which, I, as I say, I think that's that comes across really well. Quite like you know, like I said, that's my goal. You know, I want people to read a review or uh, you know my sort of thoughts on a book and think, yeah, that's the book for me. I'm going to give that a try, and I'm going to I'm going to and I feel confident about spending my money on that. I grew up in the, in the, in the I was in a teenager in the sort of in the 1970s, and my magazine then or my paper was the was the NME, which was notoriously kind of bitter, vicious, heartless <laughs> magazine when it came to. Uh, really sticking the knife into people and it could go from one week to the next to the next you know the band was one week fantastic the following week they're like we've had enough of them they're they're massively out of fashion we're going to give them a real kicking in our pages so I've always kind of appreciated that side of the desire to be nasty and that or that done well it can be really good but I just think it's you know the strong words isn't the right isn't the right place for it. So I think people should, you know, if people really want to, you know, slag books off or whatever, they should do it down the pub and, uh, and with each other. But there's yeah. no point in devoting pages to being snide or sarcastic about someone because the latest book wasn't as good as the last one. Because the other thing I should mention over and above just the reviews, there's a couple of other things I really like about the magazine. There's always, it seems to always be a focus on some of the kind of independent, smaller press uh, publishers, mm. which I really like because it's like it was an interview and then it features some of the books that they've published, which again gives them a bit of publicity. And also the you do this thing about how to write and then so the latest issue is how to write One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I always think is really entertaining and dead interest. Well, that how to write thing is, uh, is you know, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek in that like, so the format is if you wanted to write a particular classic book how would you do it so with every issue it's so this one at this time is have one flew over the cuckoo's nest i can't remember what the last one was perhaps in cold blood i did recently and uh the next one is wolf hall and so they're all you know books that people are probably going to know and are, are familiar with but my concept is that to write these books they kind of they kind of begin with the author as a child how they grew up how they became writers the things that had to fall into place for them to be that kind of writer, to find that subject, to bring that book into, into existence. And then obviously with the, with the sort of site, with the concept. So if you do this, then you too could write a book 
a book like this, but there are two things that all authors have in common, almost without exception. One is that they were absolutely fanatical readers from a very early age, couldn't get enough of reading. And the other thing, which is completely non-negotiable to anybody who wants to write, is persistence. All these authors who have written these amazing books, who make it feel like it was an inevitability that these books were going to appear and be really well received, have been through uh, absolute agonies of dark nights of the soul, being ignored by publishers, being ignored by the audience. The amount of persistence involved to get to create a great book is extraordinary. So that's, there is no such thing as an overnight success in, uh, in writing. Higgs is interesting. One of the, the recent guests in the podcast, Douglas Stewart, who's the mm. author of Shuggy Bane, which is you know shortlisted for all sorts of awards here and in, in the United States. A wonderful book. But he was saying, I'm sure it was at least about 18 or 19 rejections from publishers in the States before he finally got one. And it was one guy who just fell in love with the book. And that, that was transformative. And it is an absolutely phenomenal book. And uh, I urge anybody to read it. But even something like I did uh, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, uh, who, where he famously sat down and glued page after page after page together. So he had this effectively this giant toilet roll in his typewriter so that he never had to get up. He never had to stop writing to replace the pages. He could just keep going. He wrote the whole book on a single piece of paper uh, over the course of, you know, perhaps three weeks or something like that. But there'd been a great deal of preparation to make that happen, to get to that point. And then having written it, it took him another seven years to get it published. So it's great to sort of uh, say, yeah, I wrote it in three weeks or um, like Frederick Forsyth who wrote The Day of the Jackal in five weeks. You've still got to get it published and you've still got to do every, you know, those years of preparation and meditating on your character, on your, your voice, all these things, all the practice, that, all the false starts that have to go into it. So uh, persistence is, um, yeah, absolutely fundamental. Well, we are on to the last question in the podcast. And that's either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And the one you've chosen is John Cooper Clark's I Want to Be Yours. It's a tremendous book. Again, I would urge anybody to read this. It's really funny and really, just really engaging. So John Cooper Clark, punk poet, born in Salford in the 50s, to a family of rather limited means, aware very early on of his sort of own physical limitations, his, uh, his uh, slender silhouette, as he, uh, as he calls it, never going to be a member of one of the toughest gangs in, uh, in his part of Salford. But he he's, has the wit and charm very early on to become some sort of boulevardier around his the sort of bomb sites and terraced streets of, of Salford and Manchester. Uh, he's absolutely bone idle, has no desire to, you know, really study or get any kind of career. Works a bit in factories, travels around England a little bit. But he's always incredibly well-dressed. He knows the weights of fabrics, of, uh, of suits. Very cultured, likes a bit of, you know, reads a lot. And he's just got this mad project to be a professional poet, which is a lunatic idea in any uh, rank of society at any time. But he's done it, and he's still doing it. And it's a really funny book. I interviewed him once, and he is in the top three of the most sort of charming and likeable people I've ever spoken to. Just fantastic. It's funny, he was on uh, Desert Island Discs quite recently, uh, which was, it was a, a great episode. And I think he had, had been one of, his, uh, one of his ambitions 
So he said he'd agonised over these choices for years and years and years because that was obviously aspirational for him. Because actually the title of the book, because if you Google it, you, there's a, you can see a, bit, a video of him performing. That's a, one of his poems. Okay. Uh, I think it's only about a minute long, but it's brilliant when you see him. Because I think you could read the poems, but it's the performance of, of him doing them, I think, is so captivating. Yeah, and he, I mean, there's the two kind of big strands. He has a lifelong involvement with heroin, but as a sort of junkie memoir, it's about as cheerful as you could uh, imagine. Uh, he writes with great sort of love and affection, you know, for his, his sort of junky experiences. And it seems to have no, there, there doesn't seem to be any, even being in rehab, he writes about as um, a time of great enjoyment in a way. And, and the other kind of really interesting trend is that he became, he became quite famous for a while. You know, he's quite, so he's quite, he's got lots of, there's lots of time spent with, among other celebrities. And he writes very sort of charmingly and uh, engagingly of his, his relationships with, with film stars and other musicians. Again, in, in the magazine, you, as well as reviewing you, you'll get author interviews as well. Mm. And, and, I, and I, I'd read an interview with you where you said what you liked about interviewing authors, that they were kind of one of the last groups of people who had something interesting to say that wasn't yeah. either sanitised by publicists, etc., um, which I thought was quite an interesting observation. I mean, I think authors, one of the great things about authors is not only that they will speak their mind but they will also answer my gormless questions as if it's the first time they've ever been asked them whereas they've, they've probably been asked them asked exactly the same questions a number of times you know if they're promoting their book almost without exception answer them with great enthusiasm and kindness and uh, as if it's no problem to sort of answer the same question for the 20th time that day interviewing celebrities you know generally i have to say i've found celebrities to be also very nice people but they can sometimes get into this, you know, this situation where they're so media trained that they are really unwilling to give anything controversial, say anything, you know, they're not good at giving up the good copy quite often. You know, they can be very friendly and very, you know, thanks for talking to me in this kind of side, you know, it's like fake humility or whatever, but almost genuine humility, who knows? But, you know, coming up with the good stuff is not in their, it's not in their job description anymore. Whereas authors, I find, they've often done some extraordinary things and don't, always know just how you know how brilliant this stuff is that they've that they've got well ed we've just about come to the the end of the podcast i have to say it's been it's been brilliant talking to you i promised the people at the start i, I would mention again the website if people want to subscribe so it's www.strong-words.co.uk if you get a chance to have a look back through september's issue you'll even see a couple of words from me that just endorses it i I say I feel a genuine love of books on every page of the magazine and each issue gives me a never-ending supply of reading suggestions across so many different genres. That's been one of the highlights of my year, seeing my name in Strong Words <laughs> magazine. Well, books are so underrated, aren't they? And, you know, people can, people can find Strong Words. If you just put Strong Words magazine in your Google search bar, you'll get it. You'll be taken to the website. And also um, you can buy back issues as well. So if people wish to buy that September issue with, uh, <laughs> with your own Strong Words, then, um, then they, can, they can buy that too. Excellent. As I said uh, to you before, I've mentioned the magazine before on the podcast and I've absolutely no doubt in, in future episodes I'll mention it again because I, I think it's just for any reader, any lover of books, it's just it's a perfect read. So everybody go out and, and subscribe to the magazine. But Ed, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. It's, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Likewise, likewise. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20 
on Instagram at readallaboutitpodcast or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Thank you.